Lying in the dark. Lying on its side. Hello, welcome back to Repeal the 20th Century. And today, for my guest, I have Dr. Per Bylan. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Um, I mean, for your, your audience, I'm an anarchist since 98, I think, or so. Um, I'm an Austrian economist, but uh, in my real life, I guess, uh, I'm an associate professor of entrepreneurship at Oklahoma State University, where I teach and do research and things like that. I'm also a fellow with the Mises Institute. Yep. And uh, I'm glad to have you on. Um, we met uh, actually at uh, Mises University this year, and I think we had a lot of great conversations. And I said to myself, you know, if I'm going to start this YouTube channel, somebody I have to have on is, is you. So um, I had a few things I wanted to talk about. Uh, but first, I wanted to ask you kind of just about how you personally got into Austrian economics and um, where you've gone with that. Sure. It's it's sort of sad in a sense because now when I talk with people, I, I it's important to me to separate uh, policy and sort of normative philosophy, libertarianism, and economics. <clears throat> Unfortunately, a lot of Austrians get into Austrian economics through politics, so mm -hmm. that, that probably makes it really hard to separate the two. Uh, I think it's important to do that still when, when, when we're, we're talking about theories and we're talking about explanations and things like that. I mean, you can use Austrian economics uh, and support any kind of policy. It's just that it, it it identifies the real cost. And of course, that means that unless you're a libertarian, the cost is really, really high, right? So for me, uh, I came that same route as everybody else, starting out starting out with politics. Um, long time ago, starting out as some, some kind of a conservative, something ended up in party politics for some reason. And I don't even know why. I just wanted to do stuff, I guess, and change things. And then I was pushed over the edge. I was sort of semi-free market. Um, I was pushed over the edge when I did a year in college here in the US uh, by a professor. Uh, and then from there I started reading. And of course, then, then you, you come across people like Hayek and Mises and Rothbard and you read their political stuff first, probably. And I probably did that and I realized that, that they're in their economics books, they were sort of reasoning about the economy the same way I was. Mm -hmm. So reasoning about it deductively and theoretically first and understanding, I mean, these simple things that people seem to overlook, like why is there an exchange between two people? Well, mm -hmm. because both of them think that they're going to be better off if they do it, right? Otherwise they wouldn't voluntarily choose to. So already there, the very core component of what makes a market well, that's sort of libertarian in a sense, right? But it's, it's also highly productive. And then you can build a, an economic theory from that. So I think formally studying Austrian economics was not actually until I got into grad school. So I had already read like chapters and maybe a few books and things like that by Hayek and Mises. Uh, but then I went to grad school in 07. And that's when I got the chance to First of all, since I'm from Sweden, going to the Mises Institute and things like that is sort of far away and very costly. Uh, so I couldn't do that. I had already written for LeRockwell.com and the Mises uh, Institute website for years. But when I started in grad school, I had the chance to actually go there and visit and attend the Rothbard Graduate Seminar and the Mises University and, and hang out with the people. And that's when I started studying for real and started going through human action and going through man economy and state and things like that and then then i mean th th that just filled in the gaps for me and then i i realized that there are gaps in those great works so that's what i'm trying to do now fill in those gaps yeah and i i think that's a quite a important thing that needs to be done i mean um i think by virtue of the fact that you know hayek exists um Mises even exists, or Rothbard exists, is that uh, ideas are never perfect, and uh, they need to be continually worked out. And I thought it was very interesting that you mentioned about how um, a lot of people have trouble, you know, differentiating the two, Austrian economics and politics. Um, 
I'm sure you run into it a lot um, as a professor, but I, I run into it a lot in libertarian spaces where uh, people can't really disconnect the two. And I think that was an interesting thing you said at um, Mises University even talking about that, is that, that we should make that clear distinction. And, um, and it's important to make that distinction because at the end of the day, econo uh, Austrian economics is, is not um, normative. It's, uh, or, or maybe I'm getting it wrong, positive. But um, it's it's a methodology at the end of you the got, day. You got it right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There we go. You got it right. It's a, it's a positive theory. Mm -hmm. So I mean, it's, it explains the world the way it actually works. And mm -hmm. then <clears throat> you like it or you don't. That's fine. And then you can attempt to change it. I mean, that's what policy is about. That's what action is about mm -hmm. too. I mean, we want to change the world for ourselves. So no biggie. We always want to change the world. But Austrian economics reveals to you what the actual costs are. Mm -hmm. I mean, what, what the costs are involved. And as I think Mises put it, Austrian economics can tell you whether the, the ends that you seek are actual ends that you can attain with the means that you've chosen, mm -hmm. right? So if, if you choose to say you want to make people wealthy, then raising the minimum wage is probably not a very good idea, right? It sounds good, but it's a means that will not lead you to the end that you are trying to actually attain. Mm -hmm. So Austrian economics helps you with that bit, but you can, I, I think it's Walter Block who uh, has says, uh, said on a number of occasions that we really need a socialist Austrian. And what it means by that is not that he wants another person to bash, but um, that we need someone who is not a libertarian, who is an Austrian economist, I mean, who, who recognizes the power of the economic theory, who understands the economics of it, but still has other ideals, and you can have that. That's totally possible to be a, a socialist and, and be an Austrian. Uh, it's, it's just that for most people, socialism is way too costly because, well, if you follow Mises, then it's even impossible. You can, you can perhaps do it in, in smaller tribes or smaller uh, collective gatherings and that sort of thing. But, but on the other hand, I mean, you could potentially produce a new type of socialism that uses Mises' argument to avoid those real costs. So maybe it is, it can become possible in some sense, if, if that's where you want to go. It, to me, that sounds like a, a great way to remain or become poor, but that I, you can have other ideals. And, mm -hmm. and as an economic theorist, my ideals are not really part of the equation, right? I'm trying to figure out how things actually work and, and that's it, right? So. In, in my own work, I try to understand how does entrepreneurship work? And especially what, what, are, what is the function of entrepreneurship in the economy? And there's much more to it than the sort of the, the great masters in Austrian economics uh, have already talked about. So Mises talked about how entrepreneurship is just the uncertain or just, it's the uncertainty bearing function in the economy. So there's a little bit of entrepreneurship in everything. Yeah, okay, fine. And then he says that the promoter, the sort of the person or the, the the role that that causes these great adjustments to the economy that changes things completely, right? Like put puts it on a different trajectory, that sort of thing, is really important. But praxeologically, we can't really define that function. He says. So I set out and I I tried to define it in an article last year, and I think I think you can define it praxeologically, right? And Kersner followed up on Mises saying that, well, the pure economic, pure entrepreneurial function is to be alert to opportunities and opportunities are out there. So you're basically an arbitrager. Uh, so you see low prices and high prices or too low prices and too high prices. And you, you see the profit opportunity there. And then you sort of solve those errors. You, you produce a better solution by, by correcting those prices and thereby you're equilibrating the market. You're taking the market closer to equilibrium and that's why the entrepreneur is an equilibrating force. And there's something to that argument too, but I think there's much more to entrepreneurship in the economy overall than, than those two very specific functions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I'm actually glad you brought up entrepreneurs because um, a big reason I wanted to have you on is because of your book and also the lecture you gave on it, um, The Seen, uh, The Unseen and the Unrealized. And uh, I find 
the contents of um, both the book and the lecture are very interesting because something that uh, has defined the interviews on my channel has been much talk about uh, strategy. You know, libertarians are very good at identifying problems and these problems existing, but something a lot of libertarians fail to do is how do we see these, you know, out into real world? How do we see the solutions actually achieved? And I think what the other people I have interviewed on here have done really well is talk about political strategy. But something we don't talk about, and I think you, uh, that, it, you know, that you definitely talk about and other economists talk about is economic strategy. It's about entrepreneurs and what they do and that w what they can realistically do to solve problems within the economy. So if you just wanted to talk about um, kind of what the seen, the unseen, and the unrealized means for people who aren't familiar with the, the term. Sure. So, I mean, it, in a sense, it's a it's a title where two thirds of the title are stolen mm -hmm. and, <laughs> and the last third is is mine. So the scene in the unseen is, is that's from uh, Frederick Bastiat in, in the early 1800s. And then Henry Hazlitt used the same concepts. Right. So it, it's really the the actual what actually happened. That's the scene and the, the counterfactual, the unseen. So all those things that happen that are a sort of a, a an implication of, say, a policy. So we, I mentioned the minimum wage before that, yeah, you will see after you uh, implement a uh, really high minimum wage, you will see people with higher wages because anything else is illegal. So you will not see that. Right. But well, that's the scene. The unseen is all those jobs that would have been there had there not been a minimum wage law. So now you see the unemployment and because and you go, well, there, there are no jobs for them. How come there are no jobs? Well, those jobs would have been there had there not been a minimum wage law, right? So in economics, everything is about the trade-offs. So when you do something, you can't do something else, right? That's the opportunity cost. So you have to choose wisely all the time. And policy is, since it affects all of us, it's, it's really important to understand the trade-offs, right? So, um, and in this world, and this is really the two sides of, of any situation in that moment, but I think of, the unrealized is really the, the, the fact that the market is a process. So Chicago school economists who think in sort of what I, I, what I tell my students is, is the, the, the gang sign of economics, right? This supply and demand. Um, even if you use that sort of ridiculous model of the economy, you can use the seen and the unseen. Just like, like we just did with the, the minimum wage. It, it's not that hard. The, the issue, though, is that we're never in equilibrium and we're always heading somewhere. The market is a process and it's a process. It's also cumulative. So solutions build on solutions. And I think Apple is a very good example there where where they had, uh, say, they, when they launched the iPod and with the with, now it sounds di just ridiculous that oh, you can have a thousand songs in your pocket. You go, well, OK. <laughs> but back then it was like a big thing, right? It, mm -hmm. it would replace the Walkman and everything like that. No need for cassette players anymore, that sort of thing. Uh, and the iPod led to the iPhone because it was, well, basically a thousand songs in your pocket, but with a big screen. So maybe you could use it for internet and then you had a connection already through the phone. So you could use it as a phone as well. So you had those three devices in one, which then led to, and, and so forth, right? You, you wouldn't get to the iPhone without the iPod because mm -hmm. they build off of those innovations. So that is the huge problem. Uh, if you just look at the seen and the unseen, that you're not realizing that, well, if you regulate away certain things, what will would come off of those things that you're not going to have anymore are second generation, third generation, and so forth, continuing off of those things that you no longer will see, right? So, so say there was an innovation that you made it illegal because you, we don't like um, oil. Fossil fuels is really bad for the climate. Okay, so maybe there would have been someone who would invent something else. So the, an, an example that actually exists um, is Porsche and some others. I guess it, it, could, it could be like Siemens or something like that, so big German companies. N now we're in the situation where we're the government is sort of forcing 
automobile manufacturers to produce electric vehicles, which mm. is a completely different technology. And everybody, well, we're all stuck with these gasoline automobiles, so we need to buy new automobiles. Mm -hmm. In order to, I mean, it's in California where in just a few years you're not allowed to drive a gasoline uh, automobile anymore at all, Some, something stupid like that, right? Well, turns out that this new in innovation by Porsche and Siemens and those guys is that, well, they're producing an artificial or sort of, yeah, I guess an artificial kind of gas that is climate neutral, that is not based on fossil fuels, but that can go in the existing infrastructure completely. So you can use gas stations, which would not be necessary if you only had electric vehicles, right? You can also use the gasoline engines in all the cars out there, which you also would not use if you force people to drive uh, electric vehicles. So there is a solution already coming that is climate neutral, right? But this solution, if you force everyone to instead drive electric vehicles, you would net not get this solution because it's of no use anymore. And of course, had they realized, or whenever they realized that there will be no gas, gas stations, there will be no gas cars anymore, then they will just pull the plug on that innovation. It will never see the light of day which means whatever innovations would be built off of that will also not happen, right? So by using regulation to force us on a different track, which is a track that consumers have not chosen, mm -hmm. right? To be honest, it's something that politicians have chosen for consumers. So consumers really consider it to be too expensive. It's not efficient. It's not, it's not valuable enough for them. And now you have this solution that is coming and I think they're ready to launch in, I don't know, 2024 or something like that. But then it's going to be too late in California, right? And, and many automobile manufacturers have already adopted this uh, electric vehicle kind of um, production, which requires huge batteries that are super inefficient and ineffective and all this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So you would have a, a sort of a, a, an inferior technology that we're forced to adopt and then you have this new innovation that we will not be able to use. And in this case, it will be just some cost to everything they put into this, this innovation. And whatever would have come out of that using the low cost version, low cost trajectory of the market, any kind of solution. You can think, well, electric vehicles, you can't really build say spaceships out of that, right? Mm -hmm. that, that step doesn't happen but an artificial uh, sort of replacement for fossil fuels, well, that is climate neutral, that could potentially be used in rockets, right? So those rockets, we will never see. So maybe we will simply say that, oh, well, the, the result is that we will never go to space as a tourist sort of thing, right? Or we, we will in, in another 100 years instead of 12 years. That's the, the unrealized, all those things that could have been and would have been there for us as real value that we will, ne we will never see because regulation forced us on a different track. It was much more high cost, much more inefficient and something that consumers would not choose. So the, the whole point of that book is really that we're, we're limiting ourselves when we look at the scene and the unseen because it's sort of a, a one-shot game as economists would call it, right? But the economy is not. Mm -hmm. The economy is a process, and since it is a process, every next step builds off of what was already done mm -hmm. previously in that, that step. So if you force the economy onto another track, another trajectory, you're going to end up with very different results. And the economy will, through entrepreneurship and through the profit motive, pick what the economy or the entrepreneurs think is of greatest value for consumers, which means policy can only put us on a trajectory that is of lesser value for consumers, which means we will be poor, right? And then, yeah, of course, we will continue to develop on, on that track, right? So with electric vehicles, we will get, get other stuff that is built off of those innovations. But we, those will be a higher cost to begin with and lower value also to begin with than what we otherwise would have had. So we need to realize the real cost of regulations and it's so much more than just the unseen that we typically uh, 
think about and that economists today typically try to calculate what is the cost and they look at the seen and the unseen <coughs> right but they have no conception of the unrealized mm -hmm. so and of course we can't know the unrealized so it's, it's impossible to calculate that but we can sort of estimate that well it would have led to something that mm -hmm. we can't really say and that something is lost probably forever mm -hmm. yeah i i agree um with what you said and, and, and think that it's a very important kind of concept that's missing from a lot of economics. Um, I'm somebody who was studying economics as a major uh, but switched because I switched universities. I was a first going to George Mason University which uh, most people will know is very friendly to the idea of Austrian economics. There's actually some Austrian economists there. Um, and the way they teach economics is very different from most of the country. So, you know, you would see these kind of things. You would you would probably see something similar to the concept of the unrealized explained. Maybe they won't use that term. Um, but then uh, I go to a state school in New York um, and completely different. It, it is really that rigid kind of uh, looking at the economy, even when they are free market economists. They very much look at it as what is the the dollar cost and what is the dollar benefit of whatever these regulations are. And I think it's caused a lot of people to have misconceptions about economics as m merely a evaluation of, of, of dollars rather than the process that it is of human interaction and action. Right. And if you think about it, the, those professors, whether they are sort of free market types or if they're socialists or what have you, <coughs> excuse me, um, they're using the same model, but mm -hmm. they just have one assumption that is different. The free market types would say that, oh yeah, gang sign, right? So mm -hmm. we're in equilibrium, it's efficient, you can't really beat the price mechanism if there is perfect inf information, right? Whereas this, a socialist would say that, well, there are other goals than just dollars, and and the, the profit motive is leading us astray, so we should push the economy some other way, and that will, make, that will maximize the social uh, benefit instead, right? But the same model. And, and none of them realize what Austrians realize, which is just that we flip everything upside down, that the economy, all of production is really for consumers. Consumers don't really pull stuff out of producers. Producers try to second guess what consumers want. And in this process, I mean, if you meddle a little bit with it, you're going to end up with a huge cost in terms of the unrealized, what consumers will not get. And, and that's where Austrians are. Austrians are really the traditional economists in that sense, like all the economists going back to Cantillon and others, like 300 years, because they've been reasoning about how the economy works and where does all this wealth come from and how did it end up here and how do we create more and things like that, right? Whereas modern economists doesn't really matter what school or what ideology they have they they tend to be sort of failed statisticians mm -hmm. right they, they look at the data they they have a couple of of models and they they shift the curves and they shift the graphs and back and forth a little bit and they look at what is sufficient having some ridiculous assumptions basically mm -hmm. right but they, they don't see the flow of the economy and they have no conception of what the heck happened there in the 16, 17, 1800s that created this massive wealth for us? Mm -hmm. right? yeah. At least, at least the, the, the socialists are honest there, saying that, oh, yeah, it's all exploitation. Because then, then they realize that something happened, right? And they just say that, no, it's not wealth. It's just that some people are poor, which is ridiculous. But at least, at least it addresses the issue, whereas non-socialists didn't really address the issue. Yeah, and... I think um, a lot of it could be explained by this kind of idea, as you said, they're, they're failed statisticians, but they use statistics rather as uh, rather than being a tool of showing us what has happened or is happening uh, as a tool to what will happen. And they make these claims about what will happen and try to create equations to kind of predict behavior they can't. And I think that's why the, the terminology of unrealized is... is so perfect for this because they they can't realize it there, there there is no realization there unless it happens and right 
they're preventing it, it, it from happening. Yeah, exactly. And at any moment in time, if you look back at what happened, it seems pretty obvious because, well, we're used to it now, right? Mm -hmm. So now, how many of us would have one of those paper maps and that we unfold while we're driving and we need to be two people because one needs to drive and the other one has to unfold the map and try to figure out where the heck are we and what road is this and all this stuff, right? We just go, well, that, that was nonsense. That was stupid. We should have just invented the smartphone instead, right? It's so, so obvious now. But when we sat there with those maps, no one thought, oh, why hasn't anybody come figured out how to put a, a computer in my my in my pocket with a screen that with a map and that is interact no one thought that right because those steps ahead they're usually something that take us by surprise mm -hmm. and what is actually successful takes us by surprise too because very often you have a new technology that is superior to what actually ends up to be the standard right so you, very often you have an, a a common example would be the the VCR versus the Beta Chord back in the day in the 80s or whatever. That apparently the the Beta Chord was supposed to be much better technology and and everything, but consumers chose the other one because consumers they weren't interested in the engineering that much. They were interested in having bigger uh, cassettes for video, which was possible with a VCR but not the Beta Chord or something like that, right? So consumers choose what consumers value, which is not the same thing as what pro producers think they will value, and definitely not the same thing as what engineers think is the best solution, right? Because there's always a trade-off between the, the efficient solution, the best technology or whatever, in some sort of objective engineering terms, and what solves the problem for consumers. So there is there's no way of even even if you have the technologies in front of you and someone asks you which one do you think will be the next big thing of these and it is one of them assuming we know that we still couldn't guess because it depends on what will people adopt what will people choose to buy we have no clue right it's it's almost almost impossible to know and that's the problem that producers are are trying to solve and but in retrospect well everything seems like a straight line pretty much Right, that mm -hmm. one thing led to the other. We said before, the iPod led to the iPhone. That wasn't an obvious step back then. Everybody was surprised when Steve Jobs uh, released the iPhone. Right? Everybody was like, "Whoa, what is this?" And companies like Nokia and Samsung were like leading cell phone uh, manufacturers back then. They were all focusing on producing the smallest flip phone possible. And suddenly there was, there was Steve Jobs with his big ass phone and and said oh look at this and all the other manufacturers they were like what the heck is that <laughs> i mean they they never saw it coming because it was thinking in a different way about things and it turned out that people really really liked that idea so they had to change their productions right away nowadays no one uses a flip phone right mm -hmm. yeah and you know something i i've noticed about what you've been saying um and what is often a critique of, of free market or, or Austrian economists, whatever it is, um, that you know, we we tend to think that businesses are are infallible and just will solve all the world's problems. But uh, I think part of it is that you have rejected this as as the idea and more have said that, you know, at the heart we're looking at it at at producers only and not enough at consumers and what they value. And kind of what I wanted to ask you is, do you think people understand this more in the business world? Because I know you are somebody who is more active in the business side of not just economics, but just academia in general. And um, I think a lot of these economists are not. And I kind of wanted to ask you if the, if the business world understands this better than... You mean practitioners in business? Yeah, so, you know, um, even even professors of business uh, rather than professors of economics at universities. Um, I, I kind of wanted to ask if, if you've noticed that they understand it better um, than, than the economists who are, you know, using this, this flawed model. Yeah, you know, unfortunately, I don't think so. 
Okay. I mean, they all want to, I mean, in all this research, they want to be really scientific, which means you have, you know, it's quantitative analyses and things like that. So, so in, in a lot of these fields in the business school, like management, strategic management, and all of those, uh, organizational behavior and whatever they're called, all those, um, they're still trying to figure out sort of, they're, they're using, they're not using equilibrium the way economists are using it, but they're using equilibrium type reasoning, right? And, and they sort of have a, a bias for a set system where they just need to figure out how to, how to do it, right? So in strategic management, it's about how you position your corporation with respect to the forces in your industry. So you have the bargaining power of your suppliers, the bargaining power of your, your customers, and you have your competitors and you have other stakeholders, right? And, and your job as a strategist is to figure out what is the maximizing position on this landscape, right? And it's not really different from economists' models. And, and they're completely missing the entrepreneurship point, right? So even talking to people in, in big corporations, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a factory, right? Even the, the strategy part of it, the, the management of it, it's, it's formal models, it's, it's calculations, they're just assuming that things are what they are. Uh, of course, they try to uh, avoid competition, whether it's through policy or through other measures, but th they don't want to, and they want to prepare as much as po possible. But it's really about the planning, and it's about planning in the system where they think they know the sort of the boundaries. And, and that's sort of that's sort of the core of, of what I do in a scholarly way, right? Looking at how the economy doesn't really have boundaries. So at any moment in time, yes, it does. But mm -hmm. those boundaries are always shifting. So you can't really, you can't really say that. Well, well, we'll just adjust things within within the economy to make it better. Or like in Kersner's case, you you find the errors and you solve them at least partially, and then you get closer to equilibrium. Well, I mean, in, in my book, The Problem of Production, what I say is that, well, no, because in new innovation really shifts the boundary of the whole economy. The, the economy is different afterwards. So it's not about um, finding the errors that, it, that are there and solving them somehow. It's about creating new value. And there's really no end to creating new value. So, I mean, this is, this is not very optimistic. Right, <laughs> everything is pessimistic so far, but it, there is an optimistic side to it, and that is entrepreneurship. So, I, I've I've said a number of times on on like the Economics for Business podcast and elsewhere that most entrepreneurs, most at least the experienced entrepreneurs, they are Austrians. They just don't know it because they have already figured out that some things it just don't work, and they have to figure out, for instance. What does my customer actually want? What is my customer willing to pay? The, the price is not what I want to charge. The price is what the consumer is willing to pay, right? So I, I usually teach my students and I, and I write in basically every, every column that I write that it's the other way around, right? Most un, inexperienced entrepreneurs, they would say that, oh, I want to produce this sort of thing. So they start calculating, okay, how much would it cost to produce this thing? Ah, okay, so it, it will cost me about $8 a piece. Well, I, I need a profit too. 25% is, is a good markup. So I'll just put the price at 10 and then they go to the market and try to sell it. It seems reasonable. I mean, you need to produce it before you sell it, that sort of thing. But it's exactly the other way around. You should do it. So the problem is that you're not starting with the consumer. You're not starting with the value. You need to figure out the value you produce. And if you figure out that, oh, this is this could be of enormous value for some people and figure out who they are, then that value will set the price. I mean, the consumers determine whether the price is worth it or not because there's a profit for consumers, right? The, the difference between the value that they expect from the product and the price they pay for it, that's their, that's their profit. So if you offer them a huge profit, that, that is a, a lot of value from your product, they're not going to say, oh, I don't know about your product. They're going to say, yeah, heck, give me one. Give me two, right? Because that's a huge profit for them. Your job as an entrepreneur is to figure out how do I produce this thing at a cost lower than the price so that I get something too. 
right? So the entrepreneur's profit comes second. But that's not where we start. We usually start with the cost, and then we add the profit as a markup, and then let's hope the market will uh, will uh, will uh, approve of this product. That's exactly the other way around. You start with the market. You start with the value, and the value determines the price. And then your job is just the cost side, really. Right. So so experienced entrepreneurs they understand this because they have they've made all the mistakes. Um, They've all sort of picked up on all the tacit knowledge, talking to people, trying to sell, and very often it doesn't work. And then like the first time you place the sale of a good in a new business, you're like, yes, proof of concept. Yes, it works. But then you need to figure out, okay, was this, was this the price I should charge for this? Was it too high? Was it too low? Could I, could I sell a lot of it if, if I lower the price a little bit? Can I sell as much if I raise the price a bit? Right. Where is the that that price point where I, I maximize the value in a sense for for the customer so it sales is easy, and then how can I produce it at a cost that is lower than that so that I make a profit? Experienced entrepreneurs know this; they just don't have the language for it, right? They they haven't studied Mises and Rothbard and 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 stuff like that, so they don't know that part, but they understand it. And when when I put it like this to them. They, they either go, yeah, of course, or they go, yeah, exactly. That's what I've been thinking. <laughs> I just couldn't, I couldn't verbalize it in that way, right? But also, as Austrians, we can. So, I mean, I started out pessimistically. Economists, most business professors, strategy management and all that stuff, it's very much about central planning, and they don't realize the, the problems of central planning. Right, but in the entrepreneurship part, we realize that well, entrepreneurs are actually creating our tomorrow, as I usually say. That's their business. They're shaping the whole economy. They're pushing its boundaries outward. So the economy tomorrow is not going to be the economy today, because of what entrepreneurs do. So you can't really apply so uh, central planning. It doesn't work. And entrepreneurs, they they live in this world every day and try to survive. So they 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 either they either fail or they catch up on this. Okay, um, would you would you classify or, or characterize the difference between entrepreneurs and economists, business professors, the more the academics, as kind of a a problem of of non-player syndrome, where you know the ac- more academics are not really players in the economy as we typically think of, because they don't have to worry about marketing their. Um, their services, the 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 thing that they produce, uh, it's gar- it's essentially guaranteed by the state that they will have it, especially if they're a tenured professor. Um, while entrepreneurs, they have to fail, they have to trial and error. So, would you say that's like a correct characterization of why we see this huge difference? Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that it's totally fair. I mean, there, there's there's part of it there for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think the problem is that as a professor, I do two big things, right? I do research, uh-huh. try to figure out what the heck is going on in the world, and I teach. And those are not really connected unless unless you're like one of my PhD students. But for undergraduates, I mean, you, then you have, it's basically the settled science, let's uh-huh. call it that for at least for, uh, so it's, it's a textbook is sort of what everybody agrees on and it's what we've known for 20, 30 years. That sort of thing. That's the text, but that's what you're teaching. So, my research doesn't li- really at all enter into that sphere, so mm-hmm. undergraduate teaching. Um, and and that's it's sort of best practice that enters those books, right? So, everything that we've learned, all of us for decades and decades, that's what what it was being taught in undergrads. Um, as a researcher. My task is sort of different, so I, I don't really have to do trial and error and, and be, be part of the business world in order to do good research. I think the problem, though, is that if you rely completely on the scientific uh, method, so all you do is basically c- collect data and then you test hypotheses, then you lose track completely of what it means. 
and then you're in trouble. And unfortunately, most researchers would be in this space, right? So when, when I do research, I typically stay away from empirical research because it's others are much better at it and, and it's a different game. So, so whatever I would think is important in empirical research, they wouldn't think is important. So I couldn't get it published in a way. But when I do research, I want to understand, I mean, how does the economy change itself? And how, how do entrepreneurs, I mean, it's collectively as a function, shape the economy? And, and what I said, they are in the business of creating our tomorrow. Well, how the heck do they do that? Right. How do they overcome this massive uncertainty? How do they deal with regulations? How do they give us some form of the unrealized, even though most of them, maybe the most valuable ones, they're simply not available, mm -hmm. right? And, and to try to understand this. And, and that's sort of the Austrian in me, right? That most researchers are trying to uh, find uh, support for a, a, a hypothesis or two and then other studies will, will corroborate that finding in data and then they just move on, right? <clears throat> the point there is just is always to predict. They want to predict what happens. So the, the, the more specific the hypothesis, the more studies that have proved or, proven, or at least supported it, the easier it is, according to them in a way, to predict the results into the future. As an Austrian, we can't really do that because in, in a sense we at least tacitly, we have some in, some understanding for the economy is always changing and everything is changing and that everything fits together, right? So, so, damn dog, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> so, it, knowing this, we can't really predict the future because mm -hmm. if we could predict it and if we thought we could predict it, then, well, then we would start a business and make billions of dollars or well, billions of ounces of gold or something might become filthily rich, but we cannot. So the point of economic theory is to understand what is going on. Mm -hmm. And that's a completely different uh, goal with what we're doing, right? Because I can, I can do empirical research, try to understand what is going on, but empirical research is just going to tell me exactly what happened at that moment, depending on, and only based on what I actually collected. So maybe there was something else important that happened, but I didn't collect that data, whoops. So I'm not gonna learn about it, right? And next moment, something else might have been important. So you, you really need an Austrian understanding in order to do good empirical research. And that's sort of the, the, big, the big gap or the big flaw in the sense I see in, in research, the way it's done today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think a lot of the problem with research today is, is that it's very empirically driven uh, purely to get the statistics, the statistics that, you know, they already have a preconception of what they want, you know, and they collect that data and then they ignore the other variables that are going on. Uh, I, ironically, in, in its pursuit to be a hard science, a lot of economists uh, throw out a lot of the rules of the scientific method in their research. But uh, I, I think that, you know, y you've very well characterized the the problems with it and also explained why entrepreneurship is so important in in contrast especially in being receptive to these ideas i mean it it, it is quite important that we have um people like entrepreneurs on our side to, to succeed especially when you rightfully pointed out that they are completely rechanging society and pushing the boundaries of what we can do. And so I would say the final thing I wanted to ask and, and talk about is, is what do you think is, is the future for Austrian economics um, in terms of entrepreneurship? What, what, what can Austrian economics provide more to entrepreneurs that it's not already providing? Well, we can do a lot. So, I mean, f first of all, we, we need to we need to get noticed mm -hmm. by entrepreneurs because entrepreneurs don't know that we exist. So we, we have a, a, a lot of selling to do. We need mm -hmm. to sell ourselves. Um, but when we do, I think we can consult them quite a bit. We can help them. We can refine entrepreneurs' actual actions. So we can help them avoid a lot of the errors. And in, in a sense, I mean, when I teach 
entrepreneurship. And I said, when, when you teach undergraduate courses, it's all about um, best practices. So going through entrepreneurship courses, they're pretty darn Austrian. It's just that neither the, the entrepreneurs themselves nor the scholars who wrote the books understand that there's an actual bigger framework. There's, there's an actual theory behind the whole thing that explains all those bits and pieces. So some of them are a little bit wrong and they, they don't really fit all that well, but they've sort of figured them out inductively because, it, well, it's experience and it turns out that that seems to work a lot of the times, but they don't really know, know why. But they place the customer in the center, they place customer value in the center and things like that, right? So they do understand this bit. I think we, we have a job to sell Austrian economics to entrepreneurs, which re requires that we communicate differently. So what I think one of the problems with that entrepreneurs have is that if they, if they produce a completely new type of good, that could be the potential value of it for consumers is like humongous. But unless consumers actually understand it, they will not buy it for anything. They're not interested because the job of the entrepreneur is to make sure that the uh, consumer understands the value that they can get from it, right? Not lying about it, of course, that's because that's fraud, but, but informing them and communicating to them that this enormous value I mean, if you had this gadget, and that's what advertising is trying to do, right? Very often playing off of your emotions, but they can do it in another way too, right? They can show you that, oh, this is the type of life you could get if you had this device, or if you had this house or whatever it is, right? We need to do that, which requires also that we, we develop more theories, because we already talked a little bit about the entrepreneurship theories of Mises and Kersner, and they're not very helpful, because they're, they're intended to to uh, help us understand the economy, basically the macroeconomy, right? So, so it's, yeah, it's uncertainty bearing. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's great. But for an entrepreneur, that doesn't really help. They already know that there's a lot of risk involved, right? And, and solving problems and, and fixing errors, that's Kersner. Yeah, okay, that's also not very helpful because how do I know that it is an error? How do I fix it the best way? How do I make customers respond to it? All, all those questions that an entrepreneur faces, they're not answered and we don't actually address it because we just move on. So we need to elaborate on the theory and make it more relevant to them as well. So, so that's a, a huge endeavor really because we haven't done a whole lot of that because we're economists. So, I mean, I, I don't blame anyone. Um, we just need to get into the, the, into the weeds and start talking about how to, how to do this and talk, start talking about what is innovation, not just how to do it, but what is it? Because it, it is more than just new stuff because anyone can create new stuff, but most new stuff is worthless stuff, right? <laughs> and innovation is something that is valuable. So how do you create something that is new and valuable? Well, you can, you can sort of chicken out and and said, well, it's solving a problem for the customer. Yeah, okay, but there are different ways of doing this, and it, does, it doesn't actually help you much, right? There's, it doesn't guide you to what to do. So what is an innovation in the economy? What can we say about the economy the way it is right now? Mm -hmm. What would be an innovation? How far do you have to travel in terms of new thinking? And in, in what sense, and what, what customers... Uh, what type of value, what is missing in the economy right now? I mean, all of those things are really um, implications of the theory, but we don't have that theory yet. That's the problem, right? So that's, that's sort of my space where, where I try to be. So do that is, is definitely one. And, and so it's both theorizing as we do really well as Austrians and selling, consulting, communicating which basically we're terrible at. We're, we're really good at trolling on Twitter or whatever, but <laughs> <laughs> in order to actually sell to, to, to uh, entrepreneurs and make them realize why our ideas matter and why our ideas help them in what they do, we're not good at that at all. And I mean, mm -hmm. that's, that's why I think the, the, 
I mentioned the Economics for Business podcast before, but that whole Economics for Business project within the Mises Institute, which is a, a really big thing. I mean, they're, they're creating a, a website that, where entrepreneurs can sign up and, and learn how to, and there are a lot of uh, guides and, and sort of best practices based on the Austrian theory, helping them to solve problems, helping them to position their business correctly, helping them to figure out how to avoid a lot of errors and maximize values value here and there and things like that, right? And also learn more about these things if they're interested, right? So it's a, it's a sort of a gathering place for, for entrepreneurs where they can learn why certain things work and why other things don't. So that project, I think, is a super important part of it. But as part of that, we need to develop the theories because we don't really have them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, I think that it is quite important that we learn how to market ourselves. Um, and as you mentioned, I think the Economics for Business uh, podcast and the website are both uh, very important resources. Um, but that, that really encapsulate most of what I wanted to interview you and ask you about. Um, so if you have anything you wanted to plug right now, please plug it to my audience. Well, well, you, well, you already mentioned that book, right? They've seen the unseen and the un- unrealized, uh, how regulations affect our everyday lives. It's a little bit costly, but it's, it's sort of affordable <laughs> from the Mises <laughs> bookstore. That's the lowest price you can get it for anyway. So with extra discounts, if you're a member and whatnot, um, other than that, I mean, I am working on an Austrian economics primer. So it's, a, it's supposed to be a really short to the point, sort of a, an economics in one lesson, but that summarizes Austrian economics, the whole theory and does so in, in, well, it's supposed to be half as thick as economics in one lesson. So I'm, I'm struggling a little bit to make, <laughs> make it, make it happen. Um, but we're, we're working on it and it's, I think we're going to probably have it done and, and release it, uh, early 2022. So I think that is going to pr- be pretty cool. And I mean, if you have, if some of your, uh, listeners and followers want to translate it to other languages, that's awesome too, <laughs> or just pick it up. I mean, the, the point of this book is that it should be so s- simple in a sense or easy to understand, uh, and cheap too, that whenever say Thanksgiving dinner or whatever, and, and your grandma says, what is this Austrian economics you're talking about? You should be able to just get a copy and say, here, grandma, take a look at this. And your grandma should be able to read it and understand. And it should be short enough that it's not intimidating mm-hmm. so that she might actually read it too. Yeah. That's, that's the point of it. Yeah. And I, I highly suggest as well that, uh, you get that primer now, um, like when it comes out and, uh, donate if you can to help get that primer out and as well buy, too, yeah. um, per Bylan's other books, uh, the, un- the scene unseen and unrealized as mentioned before. Um, I think, uh, your work is very important and uh, honestly goes too under the radar uh, for my liking. So I'm glad I was able to have you on and you could discuss some of these ideas. And uh, yeah, if there's nothing else, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me on. Good to chat with you. Yep. All right.